Hi, and welcome. You're listening to Siren, a podcast about motherhood and sex. Can motherhood be a portal to sexual awakening? Can our sexual aliveness serve our path as mothers? This is what I'm interested in. I'm your host, Blair Lindsay McDonald. I'm a mother, a teacher, a devotee of the erotic feminine, and I'm a somatic guide. Nothing has impacted me more than becoming a mother. It was a complete unraveling of who I knew myself to be. And unexpectedly, it was also a kind of sexual opening or awakening. I'm learning that becoming a mom does not have to be a death sentence to our sexual and erotic selves. It can be a portal of discovery guiding us to something new, a new vitality, a new expression. This podcast is here to explore how deeply linked motherhood and sex truly are and how they actually serve one another. It's a deep dive into what it means to be both a mother and a sexual erotic woman as I navigate my own journey in real time. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone. Welcome to the Siren podcast. Uh, Today I am really honored and delighted to bring you Demacena Tennis. Tennis. Am I saying that right? Is it Demacena or Demacena? Damasina. Damasina. Okay. I'm glad I asked. So Damasina uh, is an, a writer, an astrologer, and recently bereaved mother living on the shores of Lake Erie with her three earthbound children. Currently, Damasina is most involved with learning how to parent a fourth child who has journeyed beyond the veil. She writes, writes about this journey, astrology, spirituality, and her messy human life on her popular website. And, you know, I want to say a few words before we begin also because, um, Damasina, your, your work has just touched me so, so deeply and, and you really were one of the first people that I thought of to, to speak to here. Um, for everyone listening, Damasina, uh, like her bio says, she's a writer, she's an astrologer, and she just has this oracular like vision which she lays out in in just beautiful detail in her astrological transmissions um she's she's less of a a prophetess like she's not really telling the future i find in in her transmissions more it's like she's laying out the possibilities um the emergent archetypal energies as you have written Damasina, um, which I really, I really love. They feel very opening to me rather than predictive and, and final. And, and I'll just say also that what's been the most moving for me in your writing Damasina is just everything that you've written about your son, Tanner. Um, so Damasina, maybe a year, almost a year after my son was born, lost her son. And she writes so generously. I honestly don't even know how, how you do it to be so generous with yourself and your process. 
And um, it's just given me so, so much to receive. So I want to I wanna welcome you today and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Really. It's interesting to be asked. Um, I know your podcast is a lot about mothering and it, it was an interesting um, invitation for me to be asked on a show about mothering because it's been such an, a, a kind of strange portal to be in as a mom and to have lost a child and then wondering like, what can I add to the conversation when my child has died? And then I was like, well, that's a really interesting response to have had to being invited today. So I got to sit with that for a little bit in the kind of intervening weeks. So Mm -hmm. I just appreciate like the kind of um, spot that invitation opened up for me. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? Like the things that, that opened in that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you lose a child and don't um, kind of walk the edge of like, he was 22, so not quite an adult adult, you know, like a baby adult. And you don't lose someone that age and don't kind of walk in between the like, what is fate and spirit and the soul realm uh, playing out its own story? you know, and his own, I guess, contracts within his own soul. Mm-hmm. And what's my responsibility? Because there is, there's stuff in there, right? Like to be mined. And and that's what I was looking at. Like, is there, is there something worthy from this place to speak about mothering? And, and I find that there actually is like, he's still teaching me and initiating me and the, his loss has informed how I mother my other three children. But there is also, you know, there's no way to not look at the failures, you know, the places where things could have been done differently and not, not Mm -hmm. from necessarily a place of blame, but like a place of like very sober responsibility. So it was just interesting to have this invitation and go, what can I contribute to a conversation on parenting or, or, or on mothering and to actually find that in that kind of gap, there is something potentially worthy to talk about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the way that you hold the nuance here, the way that I've heard you speak and that I've seen you write about just all these complexities, I think is part of the reason I really wanted to have you on because the nuance for me is, is the feminine translation. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult to hold nuance. And the way that I hear you talk about your love and I talk about your care and, and you also have a really interesting, um, actually like amazing story of how you became a mother and you were a young mother and you you were adopted like all these different threads and I so appreciate um use the word mining like just your ability to like parse all these things apart and thread by thread bring a lot of honesty into the conversation yeah thank you well that's you know and it's part of 
you know, that you talk about like how I've been able to write and I find for me, there's something about, there's like something alchemical in the, the being very honest. Like, I, I really think it's an, an exercise in um, not allowing shame to kind of like crop up in these little places and start mm-hmm. proliferating inside of me. So it's like, well, if I show you, you know, this spot, and then there is something about having that witnessed, you know, like just somebody else having their eye on it and just kind of saying, well, yeah, I see that. And, and, and having my own sort of humanity reflected back to me in that, like, I, I almost never publish something where someone else isn't like, oh, I can identify with that. And there's something mm-hmm. in that, like sharing my humanity with somebody else and having them say, oh, I'm human in that way too, mm-hmm. that it, it feels very healing for me. And and it's really mm, kind of helped open up my my understanding of like what the principle and the witness are and how sacred those two mm, kind of like archetypal positions are in terms of just what it is to be an interdependent human and, and not be um, hyper independent at like there, there really is something. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. The word is alchemical. That's the only one I can come up with because I feel changed every time I publish something like it comes out of me and then how it's reflected back to me shows mm. me something new that I didn't see when I had originally published it an hour before that it's it's kind of an amazing practice to like wow. write be received in that way yeah. yeah do you ever publish something and go like oh shit I shouldn't have published that or I wish I hadn't yeah, one time. I mean, I one time that I remember recently and like it was about Tanner and it was about I was talking about um just this process of like um going into like blaming myself very early on. Like my mind would come in and be like, "Oh, you know, here's this one place that if you had just not done that, you, he'd still be alive," right? And I was talking about noticing that my mind tends to go off and run in all of these different directions as a way to keep me outside of grieving. Like it would keep me in suffering. And then I'd go into all these mental loops and have a lot of anxiety, but it was all mental stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had said in this piece of writing that if I just can kind of like use that as a signal that some grief wants to move through underneath that, um, that I'm finding this very helpful. So I had kind of published this piece and a lady who lost her child also came and commented, yes, but you are responsible. Like everyone who has a child who's younger than 25 um, is responsible for their child's death. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. And I remember like the closure and the like, oh, this is like the confirming of my worst nightmare but actually it was such a great pot to cook in so like I took it offline because it was too much sensation to sit in and Mm -hmm. I had to meet with this lady who I she's like a grief shaman she's incredible and she was able to help me kind of piece that apart and find the truth in it and then also the the kind of the energy it was delivered with was potentially not the gr- the greatest energy to, to package the truth in. So it, it hit really hard, but yeah. So sometimes, I mean, and I'm sure there's been times in the past where I felt a lot of sensation yeah. in publishing stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I ask because this is kind of a, a contemplation for me around vulnerability, like in this podcast. So, you know, it's a podcast about motherhood and sex and in many ways, like the intersection of these two things and motherhood as, as a portal. Mm. And, you know, I'm sharing a lot of myself that I would normally only share in maybe like containers with people that I really have a relationship with. And so it's got me thinking a lot about vulnerability and like the, the different kinds of vulnerability, you know, the performative vulnerability, the like, help me hold this because I can't hold it by myself vulnerability, which I actually like asked my audience in the last episode, I was like, you know, I, I invited them to help me hold this space with me responsibly, you know, but then there's also ways where we spill and there's, um, a definition that I came across the other day that I really loved. That was like, it's not actually about what you share. Mm. It's like the depth to which you're open to be felt in that spot. Mm. Yeah, I really feel that the 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 kind of um kind of orientation I've taken towards sharing has been viewing the the timeline, right? Because it's like I'm publishing in real time when I'm putting it on social media. Um is that my timeline is an altar, right? And so what I place on that altar is just, it's an offering and it's not for the people on the timeline. It's for her, like for, for the mother, for, for she, right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so there is no, like, there's generally not a feeling of takings back and offering. So there's that piece. And, and I, I tend to kind of like look over what I write just before I send it out to make sure it doesn't have a, I, I don't want it to have any hooks in it. Cause I'm not asking necessarily for audience participation mm -hmm. because I, I want it to have the energy of the offering inside of it. Mm. Yeah. And so I kind of give it up. It's almost like having a, you know, when our children become adults and they leave home, it's I kind of feel the same energy with something I write, like, okay, I'm going to give up my right to it yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Yeah when I'm done with it. But the, I mean, it is a really beautiful contemplation. It, it, when Pisces or when Saturn moved into Pisces, I thought a lot about that idea of like um, vulnerability porn and like, you know, is there something in here that I'm sharing just that has a hook in it that that mm -hmm. I need something back from the audience inside mm -hmm. of it. It's a, good, mm -hmm. it's a good check just on ourselves and our motivations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll, I know I'm really sitting with that ask of my audience too. Like, was there a hook there and was that clean? And, you know, like just the kind of things that, um, the kind of questions I really like to ask myself to do that same kind of cleaning out process. Mm. Yeah. I know that I do ask I, I do ask people who show up in my space to show up responsibly. Like every once in a while, I'll have somebody who just doesn't comment in a way that's connective. You know, it's more 
you know, like they're not treating the space as an altar themselves. It is, I think there is something sacred in asking people. It's that principle and the witness kind of dynamic and asking the audience to be responsible and holding a space Mm -hmm. with you when you're, when you're opening inside of that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like part of being responsible for your own vulnerability and like your own sharing is, is adjusting people and letting them know like, Hey, that's, that's actually not how to hold what I've offered or yeah, this is all a learning for me in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it, it translates to motherhood. I mean, these are the same skills that we bring into into our relationships with our children. Mm-hmm. That kind of like adjustment and like, yeah, setting the tone as, as mothers. Oh. Um, you know, one thing that you spoke about that I was really just hit me so hard um, was this idea of grief as an opening to your own eros. Yeah. And I think that this is maybe a hard concept for some people to follow because of the subtlety and the nuance here. Um, But can you share more about that? Mm, Yeah, I hope I can do it justice. Um, Not long ago, somebody had asked me like, you know, how are you, you people approach me with a lot of projections and I totally understand that because of the archetype we have of the grieving mother in the collective, you know, in movies, like the mother is in a closed room and she's closed herself off from society and she doesn't get dressed and she doesn't take a shower. And, you know, this is kind of the archetype that we understand about the grieving mom. So I'm often approached like with gloves, with kid gloves, like, are you okay? And somebody had asked me like, you know, how is your grieving process going? And And like, what is it? They were curious and I love that. So I was like happy to engage with this person. Um, Like, what is it like for you? And I said, well, well, I really love it. I really love um, grieving Tanner. Tanner is, Tanner is dead. And I try to use these words because they're taboo. Like it's taboo to say someone's dead. We say things like past or, you know, but like the energetic is so different. It hits different in the body when you say something. So I can't change the fact that Tanner is dead. It's so wildly outside my preferences and is not a reality I would have ever chosen or wanted, but it's here, right? And so now my job is like, how am I going to meet or relate to this immovable thing that I can't change? And what I've found in grief, you know, in the beginning, the grief is so acute. It's so chronic. It's it, like at the same time, it's like, it's very intense and it's all the time. So you don't get a break. So you don't get the contrast. But over time, you get like these breaks in between. So you get to understand like what the grief actually does for you. And grief, I think, is a biological imperative that keeps us close to the people that we love and close to the thing that we yearn for. So, you know, it doesn't just have to be that someone died, that we feel grief, that we can have grief for all types of things. And it it really helps us understand like deeper dimensions and more nuance and paradox of the thing that we lost and how that thing was informing who we are. Like there was a way that that thing was contributing to our life force 
literally our life force. And now it's changed. And so that grief will come in and, and, and almost kind of like seal up the cracks, not in the old way, but in the way where we don't feel the desperate sense of separation the same way we do when we're like in a mental state of suffering and it's not actually grief. And so I think, I think maybe to answer your question from the beginning, it would be like the first thing to do when we under, want to see the connection between grief and arrows and is understand what grief really is and grief. And, and then through that, we would identify that there's like grief, pain and suffering. So there's two different things. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who, who lose something really tragically sometimes get kind of caught up in the story of it and the story of the suffering. And so the arrows piece can be a little bit difficult to grab early on. It takes, I think maybe a minute to get there. I don't know if I could have said, I like the grief really in the beginning, you know, because there was so much mental stuff inside that cauldron. And so when I identified, like I said at the top of the call, that like that there was this way that the mental churn and the stories were just contributing to the pain body being activated, I could kind of drop beneath that, like into my body. I could take that, I could stop the story from running, almost like taking off a hat and set it down and allow the like grief process to just work me. And it's very physical and primal and attached to our animal body. Like when it's just grief and the mind is turned off and you're just inside the yearning and the longing and the like current or the frequency of, of what that longing is. And your, your, your body is kind of like stretched out across dimensions. And, you know, it doesn't have to be another dimension where a person is. It can just be like the imaginal dimension, like where 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 you're not quite in reality because grief takes you to these other places, right? There is something so alive, like that that reattaches you to a sense of vitality that you you just don't get in kind of like mundane, ordinary life when you're not in this like grieving threshold place. And so that's why I talk about the connection between the two, because when when I feel the grief well up and there's like some piece that wants to be digested. Oftentimes I don't even notice it and it'll come out like frustration and like this kind of top heavy, scratchy kind of presentation that I'll have. I'll be short with people and um, feel um, annoyed or anxious and not really understand why. And then there's like, oh, those are the signals to tell me that some catharsis wants to happen and that yeah. I'm just in an avoidance pattern. Yeah. And then when I can drop below that, the, the reattachment then to this really erotic current, um, it's just sensational. And, and, and I mean that like in the nervous system way, but also in the like the level of awesome it is to connect with Tanner, my son on that level. Mm-hmm. And to be able to live from like the bottom of my heart, like like no armor, totally raw and vulnerable and like having turned my insides out and open to the world, there's like something very erotic about that. Mm, it's so alive. Mm. 
It's just pulsing with yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Um, I've really been thinking about this, like in, in one of the previous podcast episodes, I kind of make these connections of like the energetic patterns that keep us from Eros, right. That keep us locked us out, locked outside of our sex, locked outside of our body. And one that I've really been contemplating, but haven't spoken about is grief because I think there's a lot of grief when you become a mom, actually, like you, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it's like you're having to really let go of something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and if we think about motherhood as this portal to like a deepened, more expressive, more living from the inside out kind of experience, I think that grief can actually serve us if we don't get caught up in like you so beautifully said, like the difference between the story and this mental, these loops of mental suffering versus just like the, like being cracked wide open by dropping down and feeling the depth of the loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many like trap doors on the way down is what I've discovered. Like I, I had, I had this really, and when I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, you know, of course that's why it happened because I was going to lose my son. So I had this really big trauma about a little over a decade ago now that really took me to the underworld and it helped me map that place really well. And I think it's, it's helped me contain the death of my son because I previously mapped it. But I spent three full years resisting being pulled down like into the grief and and it was everything from Mm -hmm. um especially when you become a mom like i should be happy i should love this you know it should it, it should look like this and then the level of perfection that is currently placed on mothers like i think back to the 80s when my mom became a mom it wasn't wasn't like this we didn't have social media my mom had her own life you know like she was very it was very common for kids to kind of be like the thing that got towed along behind the parents whereas now they're front and center and they're 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 first and everything and I I think that that's actually right that it it should be that way but not sure we're holding it in the most healthy way and Mm -hmm. so you know when you add the like I should like this. I should love this, this whole switch from maiden to mother. Um, I should know how to do this and I should be doing it perfectly. All of those are like trap doors that would keep you outside of grief, outside of vitality, outside of arrows. I can't mm-hmm. imagine. I can't imagine because it's so rigid. It's very, very inf- it's a very inflexible kind of box to enter into. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we talk enough about that the moment that the child comes into the world is the death of the maiden. There is a death that happens. And I don't, we don't acknowledge that. It's, it's a lot like adoption. Adoption is held as this like unqualified good. And when kids are, ado- when, when I grew up, it was always like, oh, that's so nice for you. And no one ever acknowledged the fact that I had to lose my whole family in order to be welcome into this new one. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, having a birth is like that. We see the baby as this unqualified good and becoming a mother as this wonderful thing. And but we don't acknowledge the death of the, that, that a death happened really at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a denial of that feminine naturalness of things being born, things changing, things having to be left behind. And without an acknowledgement of that, like an acknowledgement of the sadness, the grief, the change, we can really get stuck there. Yeah. And integration can't happen. I mean, it's, it's, it is a lineage. So we pull the maiden in with us as we mother, like we, we, then we integrate her, but you can't integrate what you haven't grieved. It's just, it's not possible. You can't integrate what you haven't grieved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's just like going right in. Yeah. I lost my dad uh, four months after my son was born. And so it, what you're saying just, yeah, gives some clarity to this experience where um, I, it couldn't just be an unparalleled good. Like I'm actually so grateful for this uh, from, for my dad's death, actually. It might sound so strange, but like, he, he wasn't well, he was sick. And, um, and there's a lot of things about his death that I'm just, I'm not really ready to talk about yet, but it gave me this opportunity to have somewhere to put all of this grief and all of this pain that I almost couldn't even explain before Mm. and like really give it a container so it was like so much about grieving my dad, but it was also just this period where I could open to grief mm-hmm. in a way that I never had before and didn't know how to. Yeah. And from the outside, it was like very acceptable because it was like, oh, of course you're crazy and upset and like going through a really tough time. You just lost your dad. But it was actually like a culmination of all these things. And then it was like a gift to have this container where I could just let it all go. And I feel so much that it was like a great resensitization. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was this, there was this kind of white knuckling of like the birth and the first couple months of having a new baby and just being like, what the fuck do I even do? I don't even know what I'm doing. The hypervigilance of it in my nervous system And then, and then my dad passing was just like this huge movement of all this frozen stuck kind of white knuckling, um, energy that could then just like go into like (laughs) pure, raw, even ecstatic grief. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. And, and, you know, it's, it's sad because we do, we have children and, and it kind of, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's like the culmination of our lives. We'll say for most people, 
that do end up having kids, they've been thinking about this their whole lives. Like I had weddings for myself when I was like five, you know, and I played house and I played with dolls. And and so, you know, you have the baby and then there's all that expectation heaped onto it. And then you're kind of like put on this trajectory that's very, like you said, white knuckling. It's like, it's linear. It's it's like this path forward, right? Mm-hmm. Like now is the, the time when I'm going to manifest all the the visions I had as a younger person and kind of like put them into, into place. And the other piece that you brought in, like you brought in two really big pieces there is the permission piece. Like, it's really sad that in our culture, we don't have, it's such a taboo subject. We are so death phobic in in, completely grief phobic. And um, there's this, this idea that we almost need permission to, to experience like, especially right after a birth, like the paradox of, of just how vitally alive you are, you know, it's birth is another threshold place. And so if we were, if we were being very conscious and, and aware at the time, I think we would inherently understand that there was going to be grief and paradox and that we were, we're sitting in between worlds, you know, in the postpartum place. Mm, but I, we don't. That, that's such a good distinction that th- the threshold is like, it's not just moving into life force and it, you have to grieve. There is something to grieve. It's, it, it is necessarily a paradox. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's so interesting that like, the, the way we hold it though, I mean, you describe, I could feel it when you were describing that, like I was going back into like my, my own experience, you know, there's so many weird things that happen right after. Now, I don't know if weird's the word, but like, you know, you're in survival mode in a sense, like your baby is so vulnerable. You know, we're, we're told that our one job is to keep them alive. And they're, I mean, that's the white knuckling, right? Like we just, just need to get through this. We're sleep deprived, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then, and then your dad passing the gift he gave you was like that permission to have all of the rest of it, like to have a full experience of becoming a mom and to like really land in the frequency of mother, like truly embodied like like what that experience is is a constant kind of state of grief you you always grieve as a mom your baby becomes a two-year-old and they're not your baby anymore and so they're a whole new person and then your two-year-old becomes a four-year-old and like we don't I think often stop to even mark what that is you know inside of motherhood and so I found in grieving Tanner that part of like this year has felt like yes, very alive. And, and the growth in a sense has felt very accelerated. But what I I know that what that is, is actually the amount of permission I've given myself to just have it all. I've never given myself this much permission to just be wherever I am and not like put the voice of productivity over myself or, you know, the should, or even like, you know, when you have more than one kid or, you know, as a mom, maybe you felt like the, like that sense of, my baby's only four months old. What is he going to feel if I'm grieving? You know, like w- we think about these things as moms, like I don't want to show them the scary part of me because I don't want to scare them. So we hold so ourselves true. in this frozen archetype. And I really had to work through that this year too. Like let them see me grieve. Let them see me 
in my animal body, you know, and, and so that they have permission to go there if they need to, because I don't know what messages they've gotten about grieving. I mean, they're, they're old enough to have been informed by other things other than just me, you know? So I was hoping that, well, if they can really see me go to this place, it will give them permission they need to themselves. Well, and I didn't feels... myself. That was the one thing. Like I didn't take myself in front of them to places that scared me. Like I, mm-hmm. I did, there, there were times when I was like, I'll do that on my, completely on my own. Yeah. So yeah. it is about holding that like responsibility, but doing the full thing. It's, it's a big nuanced pot of paradoxical blue. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> As the mother, yes. But you gave voice to something that really was like on my mind so much during that time, which was like, oh no, I can't, like, what if River feels me like this? Like, I don't want him to feel me sad and, and upset. And, um, and what just hit me so just like a ton of bricks just now is like, how else is he going to learn how to grieve? Right. Like the permission that I give myself is like, you know, we can talk about the death phobic cultures. Like the only way I can really model something different for him is by modeling something different. Right. And, and I remember having a lot of guilt in that time. That was the one thing where I was like, you know, and luckily he was, he was conscious, but he wasn't so conscious and active, right? And like now he's talking and I think it would be a different, it would be a different process now, but then it was like, I could really go in and I really had space and, um, I just felt something kind of, kind of integrate in you saying that. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. And it was, you know, one of the things that I found too was like, there, because you play with stuff until you get it right. Like, like we don't, I didn't come into Tanner's death knowing what to do. Right. Like I just, there was this sense of like, um, you know, feeling shocked and feeling out of my body and, and having worked on embodiment for years prior to that being like, oh no, this is wrong. Like I'm not supposed to be out of my body. And then realizing Mm -hmm. I worked for years as a childbirth doula that no, no, mother's bodies know what to do. And I bet the shock is some kind of intelligence, like body wisdom, and I'm not going to mess with it. I'm actually going to trust what my body's doing. And, and, and what I really landed on was that I was kind of accompanying Tanner to where he needed to go, that there was just some part of my soul that wasn't here because it was with him and traveling and getting him situated. And, and, and then there's also the, like the real intelligence of shock that doesn't let you kind of integrate or take on more than you can at once. I think that I will be in shock for years to come. I I can still feel a sense of like, I don't have the full truth integrated yet. It's too big. It's huge. And I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with letting my body lead what that process is. Um, but what, what I noticed was that there were times when like company would come by and I'd have to kind of like get myself together 
and kind of stop a process that I was in the midst of. And then I'd feel flat and numb for the rest of the day. So I'm like, no, I, I, I really need to commit to like following whatever thread that is, like the energetic of it and hitting whatever the bottom is to bounce back up. And, and in doing that, I didn't get stuck anywhere along. Like I, I would go down and sometimes it would look like for an hour and sometimes it would look like for three days, but I'd always pop right back up. I think that gave my kids a lot of confidence in seeing me like, like she's sad, but she'll be okay. Like she's going to, mm-hmm. you know, like she'll pop back out of it. The thing I think I was like mentally afraid of in the beginning is like, what if I go down and I don't pop back up and my kids have this mother who just lays in bed all the time and doesn't have any kind of zest for life, you know, like, like I died or something. And I think that the important thing was that permission that allowed me to go as deep as possible and, and allowing the momentum to take me like intuitively just take me where it needed to, because it allowed me to come back up. And as, as low as I'd go, I'd watch TV, like at noon, I'd watch TV with the kids and something funny would come on and I'd be laughing like, like I hadn't laughed in years, you know, like we went through the pandemic before he died. So it was like, things were just very flat. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm really alive. And the kids are really seeing me fully animated. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was, there was something really beautiful about, about trusting my body to take me to the places that it needed to go, just like we do during birth. It was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that idea of, that idea of what if I never come back up, I think is actually one of these, mm, maybe this isn't the right word, but it's like, one of these trap doors that you spoke about that it's like, um, when we're so scared of going down, then the mind kind of takes hold and we can't have this like physical sensate experience of just letting the emotion come through. Because if we really just let that current go through, it's going to change. Right. I think this kind of stasis or, um, unchanging, state or static state happens when we start to put up like the walls around feeling the things mm-hmm. and then things like you said when someone would come over it just gets flat when we don't allow ourselves that that um current space and time for that current to move through yeah and again it, it exactly that's exactly right and it was like going back to my birth work that help me see that because when mothers would start to get tense or scared during the birthing process, contractions would slow down or dilation wouldn't happen. It was like the more she was able to kind of surrender to the portal of birth, the quicker it happened, the more smoothly it happened, the the less pain there was. It was the tensing against it that created the most problems inside of like, inside of a birth. So it was like every time I could bring myself back to like, this place of like what just kind of that like I don't know metaphorical idea of of birth I could see that the death portal was like mirroring the birth portal in some Mm -hmm. way and I Mm -hmm. could like take my lessons from one and map them onto the other and then I'd kind of have the wisdom of how how do I how do I do this because that was Mm -hmm. the how do I 
how do I do a child who's died? It's a huge question. And, and, and I noticed all my patterns come up. Like I want to do it right. And I want (laughs) to, I want to be good at, um, at holding Tanner's death. And, and I wanted it to be, I very quickly learned I wanted it to be mine, you know, just like we all want to have our own individual relationships with our children. And we want to hold motherhood the way that we want to. I, people would tell me like, oh, join a group so that, you know, you can have support. And I'd go into the group and I'd be like, I don't want this experience. They all seem to be kind of having a similar experience. And I want the experience Tanner and I were supposed to have, you know, and, and, um, yeah. And it is exactly like the way that moms want their own birth story. Like our birth story is very special and same with Tanner's death story. Like it's part of his story and I want to honor and revere it. And his death story is special to me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Can I ask if you're okay with sharing what, because part of when I was planning to speak, I, I really was thinking like, I have so much gratitude for Tanner, actually. You know, I expressed a lot of gratitude to you, but I have a lot of gratitude to him. And I was like, how can we honor Tanner? And is there a little bit about his birth story that you remember or want to share? How did he come into the world? Yeah, I'd love to. Actually, his first story was the thing that got me into doula work. Um, and to understand how special it was, because it's not, it won't sound that special unless you understand my first birth. So I had Alex, my first son, when I was 15. I was adopted and um, my parents had gotten divorced. And it's very clear to me now that I got pregnant to sort of rewrite the story between myself and my birth mother. And like that, that was just a huge trauma. I think a lot of adoptees deal with stuff like that, but I wanted to have a baby and parent the child like and so I could rewrite my own abandonment trauma right like I wasn't thinking about that at 15 but when I look back I'm like oh it's pretty clear that's what I was doing mm-hmm. until I was very young and um they were kind of worried about like about my birth so it was all you know as soon as I went into labor there was sort of a plan to get me on an epidural right away and then you know, it was a very, it was 32 hours in labor and I was on my back the whole time. And he had to be, he was born with forceps and I had a fourth degree episiotomy, which is very painful. It's like your listeners probably know what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with Tanner's birth, he, um, my, I walked the whole day. It was like three days before his, um, his due date. And I just felt something in that morning and I decided, let me walk. So my mom and I went walking everywhere. Um, and by the end of the day, I was having contractions and I'm like, yay, you know, I was telling him we did it. Let's keep the contractions going. And they were perfect. I mean, his birth was textbook. The contractions like, um, intensified when they should have, they got close together when they should have, he was dilating when he should have. And when I got to the hospital, Um, I was put in a private room, um, and given a, a student nurse, which ended up being a really big blessing. So instead of having a nurse come in and out and leave me alone, the student nurse was required to stay with me the whole time. 
And um, they had all these emergencies that night. So there was no way that they could uh, give me an epidural. I didn't want one in the beginning because I was handling the pain. And then they said, if you don't get one now, we might not be able to give you one later uh, because there's C-sections happening. And I I said, no, no, I'm going to try and I'll just trust that you'll come back if you need to. And so I ended up having a non-medicated birth with him with this incredible student nurse who who got me through the whole thing, super relaxed. He he came out like three pushes with Alex. It was three hours of pushing and forceps. So there was this real like, um, he really introduced me to my own power as, as a woman inside of his birth. And he has been, of all my four kids, the greatest teacher in every single way. He was the most like me, always mirrored me back to myself. He mirrored my pain back to me, which was, which was difficult, you know, um, <laughs> and, but, and just incredibly sensitive and very cosmic and spiritual. He had a Pisces moon and he very much embodied that um, kind of sense of being somewhat here and not here in a good way. You know, like <laughs> he had a, a sight or a sixth sense about him. He was very sensitive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was the first story. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like much. It was a textbook birth. But for me at 19, having had this kind of like highly managed birth before that turned mm. out just horribly, it, it was kind of like showed me like, this is what a managed birth ends up looking like. And no one says sorry to you afterwards or even cares. They don't send you home with any kind of support to deal with what's just happened to your body and, mm -hmm. and how it's been sort of, it's not a violation because it's a medical procedure and you've consented to it, but it, I remember but it's still feeling, a violation. Yes. I remember mm -hmm. feeling so whole and powerful after I was up walking around, you mm -hmm. know, 20 minutes after I had him. Whereas with Alex, it was, I was so um, numb like for 12 hours or more, I still, I couldn't move after I had it. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was just such a different and wonderful experience. Sounds it. like such a reclamation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't, yeah. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's exactly right. It was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And set the tone for so much of his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even still now. I mean, he is, he, he is, after his death, like being an adopted person, there is this like interesting thing about lineage. And I hadn't had any um, notion of who a blood ancestor of mine might be. And so it was very odd right after he died to like realize that he was now my ancestor and um, and kind of this guru figure for me, like like. The, the tables had turned and it had been so much of me coaching him and quite honestly wanting to save him before he died. And now it's like our relationship is flipped and it's, it's very interesting to learn from him because he is incredibly wise soul and teaching me so much about love and gentleness. And he was a Libra and what he's really initiated me into, I think the most out of any other lesson as a mom is, is like real mastery around the idea of what attunement is, like what it truly is, not just in a one directional way, but like in a multi-dimensional way. 
So yeah, he's, he's been, he's been incredible. And that's been like what we've been doing this past year is like, how, how is our relationship going to look now that he's not here in the physical anymore? Yeah. But I'm still his mom. Yeah. yeah. And how do you guys, what are the ways that you feel closest to him? What are the, where are the times when you feel him and, you know, communicate or touch in with definitely, him? Definitely through the grief, through that, like, like that's, that's the like most um, obvious and dense way that I feel him is like at the bottom of that, like cathartic grief, the kind that cleans you out feels like, you know, like a baptism of your soul kind of thing. It, it feels like inside that space, the veils open a little bit. And there's just this like capacity to, to be very close to him. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, and then of course, like in the beginning, there were a lot of signs and synchronicities. Um, and, and I still see those, and, you know, there's, there's dreams, but my favorite is the grief and I don't ever want it to go away. I just, it, it's, it's such a, I'm so committed to that being a lifelong practice for me to, to have the grief and to be able to meet him in that, like, just, it's like a garden at the bottom, right? It's so fertile. And so like, I think of it kind of as the garden I meet him in. And, um, I think it's lovely, you know, like at this point, cause I, I, I have the faith I'll pop out of it. I think that's, <laughs> you know, that, that helps me be able to go as deep as I go is knowing that like, once I've visited that the door to kind of come back is, is sort of right there. Yeah. When you talk about a grief practice, are there specific things or like a way that you set up yourself or your space so that you can really like go in and grieve? Sometimes. Not always. It's not always necessary. Sometimes what I need to move, I can tell it's not um it's not scary. And and I, I give it that word because I think it, it's actually a good word. There are times I think that we don't grieve because we're scared of how big the feelings are going to be. So there's more of like what I think of as a maintenance practice where I can just tell I'm getting full. Like I can feel that sense of being full. I, I'm not receptive to anything anymore. I start getting sort of agitated and short with people. And it's like, because there's just undigested grief that needs to move. And generally I can do that like in my bedroom or whatever. But if I feel like if something new moves, sometimes I feel a crack in the shock. Like the shock isn't holding out some piece of truth that needs to land. This seems to happen like once a month where there's some new dimension of his death that I haven't integrated yet. And that can feel big and scary. And I know in those situations, I need to be held. Like that co-regulation is such an important piece. And Tanner was a very hyper-independent man, you know, and um, he didn't allow people to hold him. And I think, you know, one of the lessons I've learned in his death is that, oh, I'm, I'm like that too. I didn't realize that I was a independent woman, right? And that I didn't always allow people to see me vulnerable and weak. And so if I, if I don't have a person that's capable of holding me, I go into nature. And I found that that is that nature is like earth is totally capable of holding me and discharging and taking and having an alchemical kind of 
She is for she is forever our secure attachment. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I have Mm -hmm. like learned that in the most embodied gnosis way with the grief and like how incredible it is in her capacity to show up for me. It 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 is the mother. Like like that. Yeah. 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 That's gorgeous. Yeah. Um when I so when I lost my dad and when I became a mom, I was in Hawaii. But we've recently moved to Mexico City and um, there's there's just like incredible devotion to the Guadalupe here. Like it's on every street corner. There's statues and rosaries and and um, this like I'm not Catholic and this wasn't something that I ever you know, had an affinity for necessarily, but I got here and I got this really strong message to start praying the rosary. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel because I'll often do it at night when I'm nursing river and it's dark and, you know, like all this prolactin is happening and I just cry. And it's like the grief, it's just like opened up this channel of real, unfiltered no mind grief there's often not story I feel my dad so close you know I it's just like a a practice that I've come to really really cherish yeah I wanted to share that yeah I can really relate there it, it there has been it's it's strange that that like inside of Tanner's death. I really, I remember the first time I thought like, like, you know, I don't know if you can swear on this podcast, but you can, (laughs) you really fucked me. Like, how did you take my parents and my whole family and then take my son? And then I was like, no, I don't like that story. (laughs) Like, as soon as I heard myself say it, I didn't like it, but there has been such a beautiful healing around lineage and around the frequency of mother inside of mothering Tanner on the other side of the veil, like that, that him bringing me back to the earth as a practice, him bringing me into the depths of my own heart as a practice and into the depths of my own grief and having it be in service to honoring my child. And I don't think honoring our, there's, there's nothing more motherly than honoring our children and their path and their choices. Right. And so it's like, it's all in service to like honoring the path his soul chose, you know, and like, like, I don't want to feel resentful about any part of his story because it doesn't feel like it has reverence for him or his story and like the huge impact and the way that he has made love proliferate from the hearts of everybody's life that he touched and in inside of that is like this frequency of mother and this sense that I'm oddly being mothered by him in the way that he so tenderly loves me at that in the bottom of that grief. There's there's a mother current to it. And I have I have Guadalupe on his, I don't know if you can see her. So his altar is there. And the candle next to his altar here is Guadalupe. <laughs> And so she was on his cards, his um, his like altar cards that they give you at the funeral home. Yeah, so I feel that that connection with you 
in mm. that sense of like there's some there's some really deep connection inside of grieving and motherhood that is in a sense inexplicable but so related that they can't be they, they can never be separated absolutely yeah I, I really, I love, and I'm like so deeply touched by this idea. It's the thing that hit me in what you just shared. You know, it's like this love that you have for Tanner is so big. And the love in his life, the love in his death. And it's like rewriting your lineage in so many ways and all these multidimensional levels. And I feel like that's one of the biggest gifts of motherhood is like the sheer love that can come through that we can't, at least personally, like I've, I've not been able to access and direct on my own. You know, it's this love that's just like, that helps me do what I could not do for myself, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's really beautiful to just feel like the ripples of that love and how it's moving backwards into like your birth story and moving forward into like your future lineage. And I actually just had a, a like a revelation, a realization just now, um, which was that my parents, and I, I didn't even think about this, my parents lost a son when he was four months old and had this, you know, really devastating experience of losing a child. And I, I know that they grieving was not really an option for them for a lot of different reasons. And it impacted the whole family. It um, impacted the whole constellation. And you can almost just see that ripple out, you know, And I lost my dad when River was four months old. So kind of a really interesting inverse, right? But like I was able to grieve in that time in a way that I don't think my own mother was able to. I don't think my father certainly wasn't able to. And I'm just having this like, oh, wow, that what a... Yeah. What a rewriting of, of, of the lineage through like the love that river brought in. Yeah. And you were able to transmute that story for your, for your line. Yeah. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Well, that gives me, <laughs> yeah. I, I know I'm like so hot. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's gorgeous. Oh. It's so gorgeous. I really am. I, I mean, I don't know where, and, and I'm really good with this. Like it's funny because all of the little, the little cliches we hear growing up, like I grew up in sort of a AA kind of environment, like people I knew were in AA and they always have these like one-liners and things you roll your eyes at. And and mm-hmm. I remember, you know, like those were actually the little things that got me through the early days, like the one day at a time, such a great way to live. And so I've really loved that, like just, just being present, so present and not thinking beyond this. I don't know what, my work will end up being with Tanner. I know we're going to do something together, like in the world. And I know I feel really passionate about this idea of, of permission to grieve. I think it was a gift that, that I had um, 
I had Perry and a teacher who, who used that word and, um, and paired it with the word approval and like, like just giving myself approval to be in, in spots that didn't look good, didn't seem right, didn't seem like I should have been there. And it was just such an immense gift because I feel like I've gotten, I've gotten the fullness of it. Like I've gotten all the the dark corners and the dusty places and, and there was so much gold, like mining, like we talked about at the top. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then how you talked about, you know, like in the past, your parents weren't able to grieve for whatever their reasons were. And it, it, it's very much a cultural thing as well. We don't know how to hold grief. We don't know how to grieve our culture. You know, we don't have rituals around it. We don't have lament or keening as a practice. I felt mm-hmm. that early on, like, oh my gosh, I need a ritual. I need something to do to put this somewhere. And there wasn't, at least not in the collective uh, like somewhere for me to go for that. But luckily my life is pretty spiritual and I have people that could help guide me towards the rituals. And, and, and keening and keening is this practice that you brought in from, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Oh yeah. It was one of the, like one of those things that happened for me that again was permission. So the night that Tanner died, I just had around me like my white family and, and it was fine. Like it was sad, but sort of inward, like reflective, contemplative, sad. And I could feel all my sadness kind of turning in on itself. We went and watched the sunset, which I felt was kind of like inspired by the Egyptians who watched, who, who view the sunset as like death, right? So we did that. It felt sort of ritualistic. Like every, it felt like everyone was gripping and just like you said, like white knuckling it through the night. And in the morning, I had this kind of like heart event where my heart started beating really fast and it wouldn't stop on its own. So I had to leave and go to the emergency room. My husband's side of the family is Arabic. And and we have a lot of Arabic friends and community as well that they're not just family. They're just people that are part of our in real life community. And so while I was gone at the ER, they came. And when I pulled up from the ER into my driveway, the women came out. I'm going to cry. The women came outside of my house to greet me and they were all kind of standing along the stairs to go up to my house and on the porch. And as I came to them, they started wailing like big, like demonstrative cries and grabbing at me. And like, it was like they were mirroring back to me that the universe had cracked open in this like irreparable way and that's how I felt inside like like there just a crack had opened in my life that I was falling into in a sense and I needed that I needed it mirrored to me that I wasn't crazy or something it was so interesting what that gave me it gave me permission to feel how I felt it it told me that what I was feeling was real you know like that was another thing um and just the level of catharsis and emoting and the sound, it matched the sound that my body was feeling, like the, mm-hmm. that wail of like just the pain inside the wail. And like, and that they had that for me, like they were doing that for me. They were mirroring the sound of a mother who lost their child. It was really incredible. And like, yeah, we don't, we don't do that. You know, I remember going to the somebody who lost a baby 
when I was younger and I couldn't understand why she wasn't crying. She was stoic in the church and stoic as she met the guests that came to greet her. And she might've been in shock, but for me, it felt weird. I remember that as a kid, like that Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to match the, like the, what happened part. And Mm -hmm. so what was beautiful about the keening was the, the, the what I was seeing matched the what happened. There was like a a, a vibrational match there and it was hugely important. Yeah. Yeah. And and like the, the matching of this, this inside experience, which hasn't had experience, which hasn't had context, which hasn't had permission. And then having it be exactly as you said, just like the outside matching the inside Mm -hmm. yeah yeah wow it's gorgeous yeah yeah in all the ways and it's so um I I love to be able to tell the story because it brings me back you know to the like just how sacred everything has been that we've moved through Tanner and I like since his death his whole life was really interesting and intense and and um initiatory for me and and like this huge learning and he was so loving and special and impulsive and daring and so alive like he was just a live wire experience to be around Mm -hmm. him and um yeah and that keening story kind of like brings me back into the depth of what it was like to even be in his presence as a living person because he was he was just so full of life mm. as a young man and so like willing to do anything, <laughs> anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way that you are just, you know, continuing his legacy and, and bringing him through is, is just so gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I really have, um, so much respect for what I imagine you've had to create all the inner infrastructure you've had to create just to be able to bring that through. You know, I have so much respect for that. And I, I just really honor your whole journey. Thank you so much, Demasina. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I feel like it's us. Tanner's with me. (laughs) Yeah. Story is really, really him. And that he shows up in these places to allow me to tell it, you know. Like oh, yeah. I feel I definitely have his permission. He would love it. He would, actually. He'd love to. Yeah, I I absolutely feel him. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are, can we give uh, the audience and people listening just ways to connect? Um, are you offering anything around grief? I know that's kind of the thing we talked most about. So is that something you have, um, yeah, an offering for anything else you want to share in how people can connect? Sure. So I love to talk about the subject, obviously. Um, so the first invitation is if you just want to reach out to me on social media, um, you could reach out to me there. If you would like to work with me around grief and, 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 and all I really do is is translate for people how I've held it. So it's like my own experience being translated for people. I do have grief sessions on my website that are available. I do have a really um, 
a really profound and deep way of looking at charts. And um, I have been able to really look at some of the things that Tanner is um, kind of initiating me in by looking at our charts together. It's interesting, like the, the, the archetypal mixtures can show you um, what kind of conversation wants to come through your life and be animated by you. And so I have an astrology offering um, around death and grief where we can look at events that cause grief that aren't death. Mm -hmm. And then I have regular astrology packages and, um, and I'm leading a course on Venus in September called Sky Dancer, which is really more about the feminine. And we go into those realms and the death and birth portals, but more around the feminine. It's not all around grief, but mm -hmm. similar places that we travel to. Yeah. Amazing. And I, and I want to really recommend just your, your transmissions and all of your writing, which is like, uh, I've used this word before, but so incredibly generous to receive those transmissions. Um, and they're on Facebook, they're on Instagram. I, I get, I get them like every couple of days and I just feel like just hit by this wave of, of cosmic intelligence. Yeah, thank so I want to direct people to that too. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for chatting today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah, you. it's my pleasure. Okay.